this edition of Create the Village, we focus on the bricks, we focus on the model, we focus on the technology, and the solution is in the people. If we don't focus on the people, we're just going to have a lot of stuff in a lot of messed up communities, a lot of messed up cities, and a lot of messed up states. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. This episode features an outstanding individual that I think everyone would be thrilled to hear from. His name is Dr. Calvin Mackey. And Calvin is an award-winning mentor, inventor, author, a former engineering professor, an internationally renowned speaker, and a very successful entrepreneur. Calvin completed his degree in in mathematics at Morehouse College in 1990, graduated magna cum laude, and is a member of the prestigious Phi Beta Kappa National Honor Society. He was simultaneously awarded a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Georgia Tech, and he went on at Georgia Tech to subsequently earn his master's and PhD in mechanical engineering in 1996. And in 2014, Dr. Mackey founded STEM NOLA, as in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics in New Orleans, Louisiana. So STEM NOLA. It's an organization that was dedicated to exposing, inspiring, and engaging communities in learning opportunities in science, technology, engineering, and math. The award-winning programming designs and delivers activities, programs, and events with a focus on underserved communities, a passion that we both share. The nonprofit organization is dedicated to developing future innovators, creators, and entrepreneurs through the exposure to 21st century skills of communication, collaboration, and critical thinking. Since its founding, STEMNOLA has engaged more than 40,000 students, mostly from underserved communities and students of color, in hands-on STEM project-based learning. Dr. Mackey received the 2019 Congressional Black Caucus Foundation Board's Chair Phoenix Award. The Phoenix Award is the highest honor presented by the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. It recognizes individuals whose extraordinary achievements strengthen communities and improves the lives of individuals and families nationally and globally. So, Calvin, or let me say Dr. Mackey, uh, welcome to Create the Village. And before I go into some questions, I want to, I have a colleague here with me, as you know, who I just want to say something about, but I do want to ask, did I miss anything that you would like to add to the introduction I gave of you? Uh, no. Thank you, Egbert. Thank you for having me on the, on the podcast, and it's always an honor to be in your presence. Well, thank you. I think the, the, the audience is in for a treat, but also in the room with me is Eric Pinckney. And Eric is also a Georgia Tech guy and a mechanical engineer, And we're fortunate at Integral because he's been a principal at Integral for almost the entirety of our 28-year history. 
Calvin and Eric know each other from those days traveling the grounds at Georgia Tech. But uh, Eric is in our community development and commercial real estate operations and has been instrumental in leading some of our large-scale community transformation efforts targeted at helping to make underserved communities communities of choice. So we all three are kindred spirits in some respects. We're all engineers. Two of the guys are at Georgia Tech, uh, but I won't hold that against them. So Calvin, let me jump in with a question. Late last year, STEMNOLA received, I think, around three, $3 million in grants from the Department of Defense, specifically to expand STEM education. And then just a few weeks ago, you were awarded a million and a quarter dollars from the Kellogg Foundation. So first, congratulations on your continued recognition and support for your work. Just talk to us a bit about STEMNOLA. What does STEMNOLA do? Uh, what's its mission? And most important of all, why is the work necessary from your perspective? Uh, you know, I, I have two sons, Miles and Mason. And my son, Miles Egbert, came home one day. He was in uh, the third grade. He said, Dad, I don't like science anymore. He said, because the teacher just write to the board. And I said, boy, that's not possible. Because, uh, you know, science is in your DNA. I'm going to have your DNA. I'm going to have your blood checked. And he said, no, Daddy, the teacher, the teacher just write to the board. So we couldn't have that. So I started going in the garage, doing all these activities with my, my two sons. My neighbor's son began to come over. And before you know it, we had 20 kids in the garage. Well, about six months later, my son comes home. He has a report card. I said, what are you doing? How did you do, son? He said, Dad, I got all A's. I said, now that's my boy. He said, yeah, Dad. He said, but my friends want to know how I know all this. I said, but did you tell him you do this in the garage with your dad? He said, yeah, Dad, but my friends need this. And right then and there, he realized he was exposed to somebody and things that his friends were not. And in his heart of hearts, he, that he must have got from his mom, he believed that if his friends was exposed to those people and those things, they'll be just as bright as him. And right then and there, I realized I was keeping my time, my talent, and my treasure to my two, where maybe I had something to offer the entire community. So in 2013, we launched STEMNOLA with $100,000 of our own dollars, and the nonprofit's mission is to expose, inspire, and engage the community in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And since that time, we've engaged upward of now 65,000 kids and 17,000 families and 1,500 college students and STEM professionals. We believe in STEM NOLA, what we've created is a STEM ecosystem that we can lay on top of communities. And this ecosystem is child-centered, adult-governed, an elder rule. If you can imagine those three concentric circles, we focus on the K-12 kids. The adults in our high-functioning community are the college kids, so we pay college kids to engage the K-12 kids. One thing that I'm very proud of, in the last seven years, we put over a million dollars in the hands of college students. So instead of working in a mall at a fast food, now they're going into the community and being role models, culture barriers, and STEM barriers to kids who otherwise may not ever get to meet people like them. And then we surround the college student with STEM professionals and educators who volunteer. So we call that vertical mentoring. So at any given time at our big STEM events that we hold in the community, a kid can see him or herself, whether they're in elementary, middle, or high, they can see themselves as a college student, they can see themselves as a professional. And more importantly, we've created a pathway, what I like to say, to bring the professional back home. Many of us have gone on and got all these degrees and made a lot of money and we're doing a lot of great things. 
but we want to give back, but there's no pathway for us to come home, for lack of a better word. So we have these big community-based events called STEM Saturdays, STEM Fest, and you know we have four, five hundred people just engaged in STEM. So uh, and, and the work is so important because look around us. I mean, in the 21st century, our children are only going to have three options: either they're going to take something, break something, and or make something. And if we don't give them the skills and education to make something, like make a living, make a life, make a difference, that only leaves them to two options that we see on the news every night. And the thing that they're going to have to make is going to have to be technologically aligned and technologically based because technology is disrupting every aspect of our life. So it is very important, especially now going through COVID, to see that we need a STEM literate citizenry. So even if the kids that we engage do not decide to become a scientist or engineer, at least they would have grasp on the basic uh, scientific literacy that they need to function as a citizen uh, in America and in the world. Wow. Hey, Calvin, you know, you hit upon uh, a motivation with your sons, but you know we we know each other because of our great mentor, Dr. Norman Johnson. So tell me how important mentorship is and, and, and how it influenced you. Now, Doc mentored us when we were in college, but was mentorship important to you getting into STEM even before then? Uh, you know, you know, there's a saying, Eric, thank you for that question that says, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And, and at every turn in my life, when I looked, the teacher was standing there. And I was wise enough, uh, uh, smart enough, uh, I thank God enough, to, to, to be, you know, to listen to that elder that was in my presence to say, don't do that, do this. Don't go there, go here. And you know, Dr. J was one of those. I mean, I was walking down the hall at Georgia Tech. Beautiful lady was walking towards me. I had a hat on. She slapped the hat off my head. I looked at her like she was crazy. She said, I know your mama taught you better. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, she did, ma'am. I'm sorry. I'm like, who are you? She said, my name is Dr. Carolyn Myers. She was the only African-American woman in the College of Mechanical Engineering. So she said, who are you? I said, I'm a mechanical engineering student. She brought me in her lab, and the rest is history. She became my PhD advisor. And between her and Dr. Johnson, a little boy from back of town, Girttown, Zion City of New Orleans, who grew up in a house with notebooks, who father dropped out of school in eighth grade to pick cotton, now has four STEM degrees with a PhD from one of the greatest engineering schools in the country because of those two people. I was going to leave New Orleans. I got flustered in New Orleans. I'll never forget, put my whole family on a plane, flew to Atlanta, stopped by Dr. Johnson's house. And he looked at me and said, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, look, man, I'm tired of New Orleans. I'm going to move back to Atlanta and I'm going to do this, this, this. He said, look, I don't know why you want to come back to Atlanta. It'll take you the rest of your life to build up the social capital that you have in New Orleans. Now, my recommendation to you is go to your blankety, blankety butt back to New Orleans and create whatever it is you're trying to create and get over yourself in those hurdles. Because if you can build it in New Orleans, the rest of the world will come to you. And that's mentorship. You know, as long as there's breath in my body. You know, they say people die twice. They die at a physical death, and they die when people stop calling their name. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Myers and Norma Johnson, as long as there's breath in my body, their name will be called. Now, that that is deep. And, and you know, we all can look back, those of us who have managed to stay clear of the most extreme cases that keep you off the playing field, maybe even put you six feet under. We all can point to somebody somewhere or maybe some bodies that played a role in keeping us on the straight and narrow or refocusing us when we were veering off the road. 
And so that's, that's deep, and I like several of the things you said in the way in which you couch it. Um, New Orleans, so you're, so you're a New Orleanian, and I guess before we go too far into the conversation, let's talk about New Orleans, because there are few people I know who are prouder of the city of New Orleans than you are. And I heard a story, I don't remember where it came from, but some people refer to New Orleans as the northernmost Caribbean city. And obviously, I'm a Caribbean man. I know there's a long history of connection between Haiti and New Orleans, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your city and why it has the moniker of northernmost Caribbean city. And if you can, just wrap the city's history together with what we're talking about today. I mean, see, I mean, New Orleans is a special place. I mean, I'll never forget visiting Ghana, West Africa. And uh, I'm walking down the street, and I'm like, hey, I mean, that's, that's Troy, that's Kevin. He said, no, I'm, I'm Kamasi, you know, I'm Kwame. And I'm like, no, you from the Seventh Ward in New Orleans, right? I went to the Dominican Republic. I ran up on a guy. I'm like, man, you Sam, you my cousin. He said, no, nobody. You know, I'm Dominican. So I'm like, what is this, right? So when you look at the history of New Orleans, in New Orleans, it's older than the United States of America. You know, I was on the Tricentennial Committee. We just celebrated our, our 300th anniversary. And uh, it goes all the way back to Napoleon, right? So in the turn of the 19th century, in like 1800, when, when, when Toussaint Overture uh, kicked the French out of Haiti, Napoleon, since he had been beat down by the Haitians, he didn't want to lose Louisiana for nothing. So the United States of America got to buy the Louisiana Purchase almost like pennies on a dollar. Well, after the revolution in Haiti, a lot of the, uh, the French, a lot of the uh, free Haitians, and a lot of the enslaved Haitians, uh, they actually left. Some of them went to Cuba. Some of them came to New Orleans. As a matter of fact, if you go to Trimé, Trimé is like the oldest uh, black community uh, of free people in America. And I, I still go eat in Trimé. If you go to Trimé, you see all these like uh, uh, Creole cottages. Like if you go to Haiti, uh, you, you see the same type of Creole cottages. So when some of the Haitians and French went to Cuba, after they had the revolution there, many of them left Cuba and then came to New Orleans. So New Orleans has a history of being this, 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 this mixing pot of, of cultures, especially people in the African diaspora. Uh, the Port of New Orleans was one of the major ports for, for receiving of slaves you know, from Africa. And in 1811, they had a, one of the greatest slave uh, revolutions actually occurred right up the river in a place where we call Destrahan. And still to this day, they said it was because of those rebellious Haitians that came, that came from Haiti. And in New Orleans, you know, there's, part, there's parts of New Orleans, and when we start talking politics, they say, don't go over there, man. You know, they have that, uh, the blood of the Haitians over there. They're going to fight you. <laughs> <laughs> so we've always been, New Orleans has always been a city that's heavily populated by the African diaspora. And that's why it's not only called the northernmost, I, I call New Orleans uh, North Haiti anyway. I mean, but when you look at the, the religious uh, practices, the spirituality, if you look at the festivals, if you look at the food and the okra, I mean, the seasoning, all of it comes from the Caribbean, which in turn comes from the continent. And there's a direct uh, connectivity. So, so I've always, obviously, we, we all studied our history when we were back home. And since I grew up in the islands, not just born there, 
You had to learn the history of the Africans in the diaspora and all the countries. But we, when we got to the United States, the only place we really looked at was Louisiana because it was almost like an extension of the Caribbean. So everything you're saying, I absolutely can appreciate and, and relate to just in terms of the relevance and relationship between the two bodies of land. How do you wrap your work inside of the context of what you just described with the history of New Orleans? Uh, uh, great, great, great question. Look, I believe STEM should be culturally and environmentally relevant. I think a lot of our education is failing because it's not culturally and environmentally relevant. My education, for example, I, I, I used to be on a Coastal Protection and Restoration Authority. When you look at the connection between Haiti and the Caribbean and New Orleans, I mean, from a STEM standpoint, is is our vulnerability to hurricanes and the weather. So if we're studying uh, earth science in school, which every kid has to study, why in the hell do they have the kids studying uh, earthquakes and volcanoes when we damn near just drowned? So with STEM NOLA, we are creating modules where the kids are learning about flooding and coastal restoration and wetlands. And in construction, we are teaching about uh, wind and the power of wind and how these structures survive wind. I mean, we're talking about alternative energy. We're looking at the water and how we can use the water to live with the water and use the water to, to produce power, use wind to produce power to offset our dependence on, um, on petroleum, you know, off our coast. So everything that we do in terms of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, we make sure is culturally and environmentally relevant to the people where they live, where they live. And we, we call that meeting them where they are. When our kids walk out of their house, they should be able to understand. I mean, we're going, we're having rain and floods here now. Our kids should understand, you know, New Orleans is below sea level. So we have this amazing system that pumped the water up and into the lake. Uh, the Netherlands came here, studied our flow control system in the Netherlands, have, have, you know, have replicated our flow control system in the Netherlands. But most of the kids here don't even understand the, the, uh, the, the geography in which they live, that they live in a bowl. And all of that is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And with the influx of technology, with the influx of remote sensing, with the, with the influx of sensors and artificial intelligence, I believe one of these kids can put all that together and create a new society or create a new economy for, for their family and their communities. Calvin, you're talking now it reminds me of, of good trouble because I know that New Orleans depends on processing oil and, and there's <laughs> drilling of oil in the Gulf. So tell me how that flies in the um, in, in a state so dependent on petrochemical. Well, and, and, you know, in full disclosure, many of those petrochemical companies are, are major funders of my work. So, <laughs> so, uh, but e but even they understand that the that, that the world is changing, and they have to get in line with the world. I mean, they fought it long enough, but now you see uh, like Exxon Mobil and Shell making major investments into alternative energy. I mean, so. I mean, that black crude, that's where they make their money at, right? So if we go into biofuels, you see oil companies now buying up oil aggregators because the waste vegetable oil that's now traded on a stock exchange as a commodity is, is the equivalent to the black crude. So they're saying, we know the future won't be 100% petroleum, but they, they whole mantra is all of the above. And if it's going to be all of the above, then we're going to play in all the sectors. So again, People have come at me like, why would you be teaching the kids about petroleum? Why would you be teaching the kids about oil? Why would you be teaching the kids about the petrochemical? Because one, this is where they live, right? And I don't know. These plants may be at 50 to another 100 years. But the bottom line is this. 
if we're going to get something better, then the kids get, definitely has to know what is. So they got to know about the processing plants. They got to know about the chemical plants. They got to know about Cancer Alley because then they can go be a doctor and help their people. So you don't hide it from them. You got to empower them with the knowledge so that they can be the creator of their new tomorrow. Makes perfect sense. So, so Calvin, um, obviously, because it has to come up in any conversation that's held at this time, Talk to us about COVID-19. Uh, obviously, it's had a, an important or significant impact in New Orleans, but share with us whatever you can about the economic impact it's having on the local economy there. You know, you know first I want to say about COVID-19 is that the whole world right now is waiting on science, technology, engineering, and mathematics to save it. Hmm. Yes. I mean, they're not waiting on the athlete. They're not waiting on the entertainers. They're not even waiting on the politicians. It doesn't matter. Somebody with a science, technology, engineering, and mathematics degree background, or a whole bunch of people, is going to bring forth or have brought forth uh, solutions that would otherwise get us out of this pandemic and thus allow the economy to revive itself. So New Orleans was a, was a, was a hot spot. It was the second hot spot behind New York City. Uh, I stopped counting when I had lost upward of, of 15 friends. The city has been redefined because we are a people. Again, uh, you know, one of the things in the Caribbean and the islands, people get together. In New Orleans, we are a place where we get together. So for the last year, living in, in isolation and silos, I mean, it's really uh, uh, increasing the state of depression uh, for people here in the city because our, our culture literally has been disrupted. So from an economic standpoint, I got family members that own restaurants, that own bars, uh, my PhD is in fluid mechanics. And when things ain't flowing, things ain't happening. So if, if, if people are not flying, if money not being exchanged, if food not being bought, if restaurants not being slept in, if cabs not being held, I mean, it has been a dis disastrous uh, for our economy and for, you know, for the things that, because the things that, that we are look like COVID hit it with, with, with almost like a laser like a laser missile. It came for everything that we pretty much do here in, the, here in New Orleans. Hmm. Well, so let me, let's transition into something. And I, I have two more questions. Eric, you may have one, but let's just say as we coming down to this, I want to transition to something because you know Integral and Integral has broad experience in both community development and commercial real estate. And we've worked at differentiating the company as an innovator. So we make places or create new places from places that it wasn't obvious to the observer that it could be a great place. We've done a lot of public-private partnerships. We've done development around transit and so on. And so, and you know, we created that, the first mixed-income, mixed holistic community development in the country and the model to do that, and it's dubbed the Atlanta model. Now, I'm sharing this not to advertise the company because you know us well, but we learned something very early in our history that's important to the conversation we're having today. And someone who is important to all three of us, Dr. Norman Johnson, we talked about him earlier, made an observation very early in the process that people like me, in fact, his words were, Egbert, you guys will get the 
engineering and the finance and so on right, and all of that will be great, but if you don't focus on the sociology and you don't get the sociology right, nothing else matters. So you've got to get on the sociology. So part of our community development strategy has always focused on strong public school at the heart of the community. And you know we created Centennial Academy, which is now a conversion charter school, which is a K-8 school at this point. And as a community school, it extends obviously beyond the campus, strong partnerships with institutions, including your prior institution, Georgia Tech, and we invest in the sociology and the social services that support pre-K through eighth grade. Now, the mission of the school is to provide educational equity through a rigorous theme, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, I'm saying that for the audience, curriculum to all of its scholars, and we included art, and we sell it therefore as STEAM, not just STEM, but the school envisions that all scholars and educators can be high achievers, critical thinkers, lifelong learners, and ethical leaders in the global society. So that's a long, long lead up to a question. But when you look back at your work with STEM NOLA, your work as a professor at Tulane, and other roles that you've had, can you share your experience of seeing these kids blossom into budding scientists at a young age, or whether you've seen it bend the trajectory of a child who maybe didn't even see college in his or her future. So sorry for the long lead up, but I really <laughs> wanted to contextualize it before I asked that question. And, and I'm glad you contextualized it because it needs to be contextualized, right? We think, you know, uh, uh, I believe it's Benjamin Elijah May said he's disturbed about man because man believes that when he educates a man mind, he also, uh, uh, you know, upgrades his heart. And we we focus on the bricks. We focus on the model. We focus on the technology. And the solution is in the people. I mean, if, if we don't focus on the people, we're just going to have a lot of stuff and a lot of messed up communities, a lot of messed up cities, and a lot of messed up states. And when you look across this country, we see a lot of messed up stuff because we have not focused on the people. And that's why when I started even a STEM NOLA work and would differentiate us from other people is that we put the children and the family and the community at the center. Everybody else started with the technology. Everybody else walk in the room and start talking about how great their technology is. We walk in the room and start talking about how valuable uh, the people are and why they deserve to have this technology. You know, we're about to build a 42,000 square foot innovation hub you know, in New Orleans East, in a, in a side of the city where people uh, really don't invest. And people say, why are you investing out there? I said, because when people have to leave their community to get something valuable, that society is making a value statement to them. So if I put something in a community of value, they're going to say, you know what? Hey, you thought about us. This is for us. And when they have something value in their community, a value in their community, other people will leave their communities and will have to come to their community to get that value. Then they'll have to invest in that community and they have to bring their dollars in that community. And then we uplift everybody. So getting to your question, there have been instances. I mean, my wife and I, where parents write us and we've seen the impact on kids. We've seen the impact on families and the trajectories of families have changed just in the eight years that we've been doing this 
because there have been parents who've come to our events, heard about something they didn't even realize was a possibility for them, and they've seen the attitude of their kid change towards education. We have kids every other week now, we bring a kid on the news, and a kid takes three minutes to uh, do an experiment on the news. And people are going, where are you finding these kids? I say, we're finding the kids in the same schools that, that are failing. So the kids are absolutely bright. The kids absolutely want it. We have to change the way we engage them and address them. And last year, we ran a commercial about a young guy named Troy. Troy came to us in the seventh grade. He was a you know, single mother. His mother just wanted what's best for him. She said, look, I'm going to bring him to you all. He just started hanging out with us. Troy left New Orleans and went to Howard. Broke my heart. He didn't go to Morehouse. I started buying him Morehouse stuff ever since he was in like the seventh grade. You know, he didn't go to Georgia Tech. I'm like, man, you could have won. He had two choices and he went to Howard. But Troy right now is an engineer working on an F-35 fighter jet for Lockheed Martin in Dallas. And uh, every time I see a mother, I mean, a tear come out of her eye. And other mothers and other fathers not believe because we, we see kids moving through the pipeline. Parents said, you know, they, they didn't even know what the engineer did. They, they didn't know what a scientist is because when we have these events, when we invite these professionals and we have this vertical mentoring, a lot of times kids don't get to meet us. For example, most of the time kids only get to meet doctors when they're sick. We have a STEM Saturday called uh, uh, the Heart and Circulation Day where we invite up with a 200 kids out surround them with college students and medical students. Then we invite surgeons and healthcare professionals out. And the kids in white lab coats, the doctors in white lab coats, and for the first hour, they dissect a sheep heart. And then for the next two hours, they build a mechanical heart that they take home. Literally, parents have cried because uh, the mindset of what their kid can be changed when they saw their daughter working with another woman dissecting a sheep heart. So in essence, what we've done in New Orleans, what we think we can do in this country with this model, is that we've changed the, the mindset of a community. We're about to launch STEM Depot, a store, because parents want to know where can we buy this stuff. Because they come to our events, they learn about it, and they don't know how to get it. So we are changing even purchasing behaviors around Christmas when the parents made me have a seminar to tell them what, kids, what type of toys they should be buying for their kids to help them improve the skills of their children. So... You know, every time I get tired and say I want to quit, something happened. A mother, a child, a father comes up. Uh, recently, look, I got I got my first wreck. First wreck, right, in my life. And my buddy said, my, my buddy came out. He said, y'all right? He said, yeah, I'm all right. Then he told my brother. And you know it was his first wreck because when the police came, he just confessed everything. <laughs> <laughs> the police said, what happened? I was like, man, she stopped. I ran into her. The police said, you ran into her? I said, yeah, just bam, right? So the police said, okay. So The policeman was probably shocked that you were honest coming out the gate like that. <laughs> I just told everything. So we go through everything. And sure and behold, you know, when it was over, the police said, wait a minute. And he let the people leave. He pulled me to the side. He said, look, man. He said, you are changing lives. This work that you all are doing changing lives. He said, now look here. This, I'm going to let you go this time. Now you got an accident, but I ain't going to give you no ticket. All right. And this, you just went on the house, but you keep doing what you're doing. So people see the work, but more importantly, our, our kids are experiencing the work and the city is a better place for it. Well, I know, Eric, Eric, I'm going to ask you if you have a question 
before I la ask the last question, but Eric, I think you have something you are going to talk to Calvin about to do in one of our communities, because the only negative about what Calvin is doing is it's in New Orleans <laughs> and we're right here in Atlanta and we've been, we've been needing to figure out right, how we right. get what he does right here. Right, right. As usual, you anticipate well. Uh, I, I was going to leave it broader than that to, you know, ask you to point out what types of activities you're doing um, in other places in the country. But yes, although Doc sent you out of Atlanta, Atlanta needs you also. What can we look, what can Atlanta expect from you, Dr. Mackey? I, you know, and Eric, you know, I want to come back to Atlanta, man. You know, but New Orleans won't let me go. They're like, look, we, <laughs> I, look, I got a passport. I got a check. You know, they don't just let me leave New Orleans. They're like, look, boy, leave your passport. You got to come back. Right. But right now we're doing STEM in Minneapolis, uh, Cape Cod, Mass, uh, Bridgeport, Connecticut. People people are licensing the model. And, and, and Atlanta got to be the space. I mean, uh, New Orleans birthed me, but Atlanta grew me up. When I start talking about STEM, STEM for me is not a New Orleans journey. My STEM journey. It's what Atlanta poured into me. And and I was there when you all was, was redoing a, a Hope, John Hope Holmes and all of that. And I remember Doc telling me about, you know, uh, this vision and this and that. So everything I have, I would love to bring to Atlanta. And and now and Doc told me this now. He said, if you can pull it off in raggedy New Orleans, I said, now don't don't call my city raggedy. He said, if you can do it in New Orleans, and this is what he told me, he said, New Orleans is small enough to be is large enough to be considered a city, but it's small enough for you to get your arms around. He said, if you can make it work in New Orleans and conquer New Orleans, the rest of the world will come looking looking for the model. This model will transform Atlanta because of the industry in Atlanta. We build these events and they align with the economic drivers in the community, right? So for example, the local utility here is uh, energy. So we have these big events around power and transmission. How does Intergy not support teaching kids about power and transmission? So if we were to come to Atlanta, how would the Southern Company or Georgia Power not support that? So the bottom line is that we built all these modules and the companies almost is in their DNA because it, it aligns with their mission. It, 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 it uplifts their brand and it connects the community to their professions. So anywhere where there's a large hub of industry, this, this, this is a no brainer and it will work. So I'll work with you all to bring it to Atlanta. Great. Eric, Great. I, I, I take that as a challenge. I'm going to throw that challenge to you because we've been talking about exactly this gap. And we know Calvin really well. We knew him when he was nothing, when he was just a little <laughs> young boy. Um, and I don't know if that's ever true because we're not that far apart but in age. But, but you know what I mean. And, right. and so, yeah, we need to answer that question. That's a challenge. Um, so but, Calvin, but I'm sorry. The, the, the differentiator here, and the reason why I was when 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 we all called, I said I'll definitely do it because what we've created is a cradle to career pipeline that connects the community to the school and the school to the professionals. Uh, so with the community development work you all are doing, this fits right in. Yeah, got it. All right. So so Calvin, last question. I don't want to kill your time. Um, recently. There was an article published in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, it was entitled, To Attract Black Employees, Companies Move to Them. And the simple premise of the story is that corporate America, but especially Silicon Valley, 
has a diversity problem in their ranks, that an awareness of the, this long-standing problem has developed, and that these companies are now actively seeking a more diverse workforce, but establishing regional or support offices where more diverse populations already live. For example, Atlanta. So they've changed their strategy to try and find locations where those targeted employees are. So generally speaking, um, how do you interpret that trend, assuming it's accurately reported? Are you seeing that? Are you hearing that? Because you're in this space and in this conversation on a regular basis. Uh, let me say this. You know, I wrote two books. One is A View from the Roof, Lessons for Life and Business. My, my other roof book was called Grandma Hands, uh, Proverbs of Wisdom. And uh, one thing my grandmother taught me, she said, baby, if you want a buffalo, don't go to a petting zoo. She said, you got to go where the buffaloes roam. And what Silicon Valley does and what many other people do is that they claim they want buffaloes and they show up at the zoo to see one or two of them. But they refuse to go where the buffaloes are. And it's, it's a no-brainer. As a matter of fact, that's what Henry Ford did after World War II when he shut down the European borders and we couldn't get migrant European workers. What did he do? He came down south and, you know, and, and migrant workers began to leave the south and the blacks went straight up I-55 to Chicago and, and, and into uh, Detroit and he had the River Rouge plant. But then what they noticed is that whenever they had all these disparate populations coming together, they would always have labor issues. So again, technology disenfranchised the black worker with the advent of the interstate system and automation. So it created the suburbs and Henry Ford said, never again, where one population have such control over my, my, my manufacturing. So he put all of these plants out in the suburbs where they otherwise couldn't get to. So even now, when you look at car companies, when you look at Toyota, when you look at Nissan, when they come to the United States, where do they locate? They don't locate near urban areas. They locate in other areas that's more homogeneous, white rural areas where they can have better control over their population. So the bottom line is that if we want to get diversity and we want to change that, then those companies need to come back to where the people are. And at the same time, the people have to be willing to get the education and go to where the companies are. But if they're going to change Silicon Valley from a diversity standpoint, they're going to have to create uh, satellite offices and communities that, that are more diverse. And I'll give you one example that resonates with us. Why do you think Georgia Tech is the number one producer of blacks in engineering at, at the undergrad, master's, and, and, and PhD level? Why do you think now Atlanta is like the tech hub for, for black innovators? Because that's where the black people at. So, <laughs> so the bottom line is that if, if they want a buffalo, they know where the buffaloes are. Okay. So, Calvin, no, this is, thank you so much. This is, this is great. Um, chance to get back together, talk about something important, relevant, potentially impactful to, to the listeners. We hope so, at least. And um, I just miss you not being around here, but we're going to change that. Eric and I have some work to do to get that right. We know where we're bringing you, so we already have it in our head. So you're going to be, your phone is going to ring soon, and you're going to say, man, y'all weren't kidding. Hey, look, I, I got a private, I, I don't mean to shock y'all, but I have a private plane. I, I kept it a secret. And, I, you know. <laughs> I have, Delta, I have one. I have one too. Delta will bring me to Atlanta every hour. Oh, okay. I was going to tell you, I have one too, but it's about maybe 14 or 15 <laughs> inches long and it's 
mounted on in my office. Got it. So, Calvin, thank you very much for sharing your, your time, your wisdom, and your experience with us today. Um, we, we don't um, take it lightly. We heard the message. And I just want to close this out with a warm thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. Thank you. Hey, and thank you all. Thank you all for having me. Create the Village is produced by Rick White. Directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group. Thank you.